Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, Faculty of British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast. My name is Khalil Jessa, and I am a director at large at Facul VC, and I currently work at Hakimian Ridgedale LLP. Welcome, Khalil. I'm so excited to have you here on this episode with me today, as well as Professor Julie McFarlane. But Professor Julie McFarlane is a distinguished emerita professor of law at the University of Windsor. Julie has received many awards for her work, most notably the Order of Canada, as one of Canada's 25 most influential lawyers in 2017, and the John M. Haynes Distinguished Mediator Award from the Association for Conflict Resolution in the same year. She and the National Self-Represented Litigants Project have won multiple Clobbies Award for her podcast and the projects and resources for self-represented litigants. Julie is also a cancer survivor and a brand new grandmother. <laughs> so... First of all, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here as a former professor of mine and also a friend of mine. We're going to start off by talking and asking you about the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, which I know is something that is very near and dear to your heart and that you've been working on for a long time and actually gave you the Order of Canada, which is an amazing amazing honor to have. So, why don't you start off by telling our audience what is the National Self-Represented Litigants Project? Thanks very much Khalil and Fiona. And actually the thing I'm the proudest of for the Order of Canada is that I was nominated by a group of self-represented litigants which wow. did a little bit to kind of assuage my mixed feelings about getting a colonial honor. <laughs> 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 so the National Self-Represented Litigants Project, I know it's a mouthful, grew out of a piece of research that I did which I reported on in 2013. which was the first time that a Canadian researcher had really looked at and, and tracked and documented the experiences of people who were self-representing and i did the work because i was very struck a couple of years earlier when i began the project by the fact that so much of what we believed or thought about self-represented litigants who we could now see were everywhere in the courts so much of that seemed to come from really badly informed understandings of why people were representing themselves and we were relying for research purposes at that point on talking with and collecting ideas and information from lawyers and judges within the system and their summary of self-represented litigants and what it's like to work with them was they are an enormous pain in the backside. So that really wasn't getting us very far in terms of understanding this phenomenon. So what I wanted to do was to talk to people about their personal experiences and how they got to this place. And so I interviewed almost 300 people which is a very very large qualitative survey and each of them I spent about 45 minutes to an hour with. and i very very quickly found that the reasons that people were doing this and the story of their experiences was very different from those stereotypes that by far the most important reason was lack of funds and one of the things i had totally not expected to find was that more than half of those people had begun with a lawyer because of course they didn't want to do this themselves they ran out of money 
And that was why they were now self-representing. And then the other half of my 300 or so sample, the other half of the folks had never had the money to begin with because they couldn't afford the $5,000 retainer or whatever it might have been, yet they didn't qualify for legal aid. So if you look quantitatively now at the levels of legal aid across Canada and you look at what it costs for legal services, it doesn't take very long to figure out that the majority of people can't afford them or at least not for more than a very short period of time. And they don't qualify for legal aid because that's set at such a very, very low limit. So there's a kind of a middle group here who don't qualify for legal aid, can't afford lawyers. And now that finding has been reinforced by studies in many other parts of the common law world. So that's what drew me to this, trying to find out the real story. And I thought that at the end of the study, we had a really interesting dialogue that included judges and lawyers, policymakers, self-reps to look at the results. And the people who came to that dialogue decided that, no, we needed an ongoing project, that this had identified such a deep level of need, not just for advocacy and increased research and understanding for self-reps, but also for resources. And so that was how the National Self-Represented Litigants project was born out of that research. And it has basically four goals. One is to continue to do research. Another is to advocate for the interests and for the needs of self-represented litigants. And another is dialogue and collaboration, because what we're trying to do is to get members of the public into these policy discussions. We have a bit of a bad habit in the justice system of creating solutions for people that we think are a really good idea, but we forget to ask the people if they think they're a good idea. And then finally, resources. So we have now more than 20, what we call primers, which are all free and downloadable and which have been written with input from self-reps from how to prepare yourself to go to your first hearing, how to think about negotiating with the other side, how to work with a lawyer on the other side, all sorts of different aspects of the legal process and also aspects of keeping people kind of sane and together because this is an incredibly difficult and challenging and often traumatic experience for people to navigate the system alone. Yeah, so that's amazing, an amazing thing that could come out of your research for it to be ongoing. I don't know how many lawyers I've heard say, well, if I got into legal trouble, I wouldn't be able to afford my own rate. So I don't yeah. know how other people afford, afford yeah. lawyers. And you're absolutely right. Six of my almost 300 interviewees wow. were lawyers um, mm -hmm. representing themselves in an area of law that they didn't practice, usually family. And yeah. they actually were amongst the most traumatized people of all. The year I spent interviewing was like spending a year in grief counseling. That's how hard it was to mm -hmm. hear these stories. But the lawyers were the most affected of all because they talked about the difference between the way they were treated when they went into court as a lawyer for someone and the way they were treated when they went in as a self-rep. And they were totally shocked by the enormous contrast. You mentioned that you sampled 300 people. So how did you go about choosing these 300 people? I'm interested in hearing about the process and how you selected these candidates. Well, they weren't selected, first of all. Mm -hmm. This wasn't a fully randomized study, but they came from Alberta, British Columbia and Ontario, each of which funded the project through the Law Foundation. I used a website to reach out to people. We put signs up in courthouses. We used our own networks of you know lawyers that I know in those provinces to encourage people. And uh, 
they just kept coming. <laughs> in this particular project, more than any other empirical project I've done in the last 40 years, the data settled almost immediately. Within just a few months, I was hearing the same stories over and over again, and that was irrespective of which province, irrespective of whether family or civil, irrespective of whether court or tribunal, just the same stories over and over again. But we do continue at the project. We have something on the website that allows people to fill in a survey form, an intake form, which mm -hmm. tells us a lot about their experience. And we analyze um, and publish that data every year to 18 months. We've just actually put out a new report. So we do continue to collect people's stories because I believe that understanding one another's experiences is what helps us to make good change. Well, absolutely. That was also the backbone behind our documentary as well. We also invited submissions to have people share their own stories of discrimination and bias that they've yeah. faced. And once you opened that, it was like a yeah. floodgate. So we had so many submissions that we had to cut it off. So yeah. I, I absolutely could resonate with that. Did you uncover any findings with respect to Asian Canadians? And were you able to collect any data on what percentage of self-represented litigants are Asian? Well, it's a very good question for you. It's interesting because I think it shows you how we're beginning to change how we think about including race within research methodologies. When I did the original study, I didn't include any questions about ethnic origins in it. But we, of course, are very aware now that we need discrete data that recognizes the particular experiences of racialized groups, marginalized groups. And so one of the things that we've been doing is adding that data. So we now collect data about ethnic origins and how people self-identify on our intake form. Fiona, to answer your question on what percentage of self-represented litigants are Asian Canadians, self-represented litigants are everybody. They are people of every race, every background, every age, also a very wide range of educational abilities, of socioeconomic demographics. So one of the things that we are now trying to do is highlight particular communities where we don't feel we have sufficient representation within our databases. We do this all the time for feedback to different courts and tribunals so that we can really in increase the number, for example, of Asian Canadians. We're also trying to do a lot more outreach with Black Canadians and Indigenous people. Is it even less likely that people from racialized backgrounds or immigrant backgrounds will even attempt to be self-represented litigants, that yes. they feel so disconnected from the legal system that they may not even get to that point where they become self-represented litigants. That is my working hypothesis, Khalil, that we're going to see an underrepresentation throughout the system that is going to be more frequently white, middle-class, better educated people who just feel that they can take it on. Whereas mm -hmm. people who have experienced hostility or discrimination in other ways are going to be much less likely to even begin. We know that people who, for example, don't have um, a good command of English or French are going to be incredibly discouraged. They're going to be looking at documents that even though they are in English and French are going to read like their foreign documents anyway. Another group that we've started to do more work with that I am very concerned about are people with disabilities and not only physical disabilities, but also cognitive disabilities. We're actually just about to release a research report on that. So you have to be really determined to do this and you have to be even more determined if you have additional obstacles and additional challenges to face and perhaps very bad experiences 
of dealing with these types of bureaucracy in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That leads us to the next question. Hope what so. can lawyers do to help with this crisis? I feel like the legal profession is literally sleepwalking through this. It still astounds me that people can be graduating from law school in Canada in 2021 and to be completely unaware that, for example, in Toronto and Vancouver, almost 80% of litigants in family court are self-represented. One of the things that we're doing at the moment is trying to bring more programming into law schools and bring self-reps to talk to them and so forth. But to answer your question more directly, what can lawyers do? I think the very first thing is inform themselves. There's lots of good research out there now, mine, but not only mine, and it's all extremely consistent. And I think it really helps people to understand why it is that we have this phenomenon and exactly what we discussed already earlier in our conversation about the costs. And I think that it also helps to look at this and realize that we are all part of a generation now that has been profoundly affected by the internet. And so the combination of unaffordability with the apparent seduction of all these internet resources, I can't even tell you how many people have told me. The first thing I did was type my problem into Google. I thought, well, how hard can this be? It's free here. Why would I go and pay a lawyer? But of course, that very quickly turns into a, oh my God, this is so much harder than I had realized in all kinds of ways. So I think it's really incumbent on young lawyers entering the profession now to know about this, to know how some of these cultural changes and also how the economic issue around the cost of legal services is going to affect the people that they see in courts. The other thing I think that I'd want to say to the lawyers listening is that if you are interested in offering services to personal clients, you will be able to hopefully provide services that are more affordable for people. I mentioned earlier on that one of the huge obstacles for people is they can't pay a traditional retainer up front. Not that many people have five or 10 grand sitting around that they can just plunk down for a retainer. So we're seeing the development of some new forms of legal service delivery and some amazing lawyers who are doing this where there is no retainer payment and the retainer agreement will specify certain tasks only that the lawyer is going to do. So perhaps they will first of all contract specifically for them to you know, draft the paperwork, file the documents, and that'll be it. So instead of being from here till the end, which is how we usually put together a legal retainer, and it's a bit like getting in a taxi and not knowing how far you're going or how far that meter is going to go up. Instead, it's been negotiated. And that might mean that that person comes back again a few months later and says, okay, now I need you again. I've got another, you know, $5,000. Could you help me with this? It's more of a bespoke piecemeal process. And Related to that, growing out of that, is this movement towards legal coaching, which I'm really thrilled to see because this did come directly out of the research data. When I asked self-represented litigants what they ideally wanted from lawyers, not that many of them wanted the lawyers to kind of take over full control of everything. The legal coaching model is to empower that person to be more effective I will use my expertise as a lawyer and my knowledge and experience to coach you to do this yourself. I think a lot of lawyers went to law school because they wanted to help people, but then the economics of law make it so difficult to help the people who really need help. 
Right. So, but, there, but there are ways to do this. We have a directory on our website called the National Directory of Professionals Assisting Self-Represented Litigants. And it includes people who offer unbundling services and coaching services. It's used a lot to find legal assistance by self-reps who just need some kind of input. They can't afford the whole nine yards, but they want some form of input. And one of the consistent things that lawyers who do this work say it is incredibly satisfying. Anecdotally, we hear over and over from lawyers that it is easier to collect fees from people they give coaching and unbundled services to because there's so much more clarity between them about who's doing what and what the value for money is. The rest of the time, they have no idea what this bill is for. Instead, it's carefully contractually negotiated. I had no idea. People are grateful because that's the kind of help that they want. Fascinating. I'm going to move on. Um, to your work on NDAs. And I know right now you are heading a very ambitious campaign called Can't Buy My Silence. Well, Can't Buy My Silence is the name that myself and my co-founder Zelda Perkins have given to this campaign. Zelda, people may recognize her name, was the first woman to break her Harvey Weinstein NDA back in 2017. And she and I basically met on Twitter, <laughs> like all good meetings take place these days. We share a passion for informing people about the harm that these non-disclosure agreements, which are now so widespread, are doing and alerting people to the harms that they're doing. And part of that is speaking to the legal profession and asking them to stop and question what has started to become a default pro process. So a non-disclosure agreement was originally something that was created to protect trade secrets, especially in the 1980s with all the new tech industries, people wanted to hold on to obviously commercial secrets. And what we're proposing has got nothing to do with that. What was originally a very particular purpose has now morphed into this creeping monster so that we see non-disclosure agreements now. Many lawyers have estimated to me in 95% of settlement agreements. They're part of the wow. settlement release. What they say is that whatever is specified as being confidential cannot be disclosed by either party and it's for an indefinite period. Um, it includes very often specifically that information can't be disclosed to family or friends. It often includes can't talk to a professional counsellor. We're talking about largely, but not exclusively, misconduct in the workplace, sexual harassment complaints, discrimination complaints, any kind of bullying or intimidation, pregnancy discrimination, equal pay discrimination. When people raise a complaint on any of those grounds, there is an investigation and there is a complaint being made out here. What they are routinely asked to do now is to sign an agreement that they will never talk about what happened in exchange for what is usually a fairly pitiful amount of money. In other words, they won't talk about the sexual harassment or the racial discrimination or whatever the issue was. At the time that people are presented with these, they're always told everybody signs these. It's normal. But of course, it isn't actually normal to gag people for the rest of their lives on a particular issue. It's fairly normal to say we want to keep the settlement amount confidential. That's not that unusual. But to say that everything that led up to this dispute, all of you know the information and the details, I've even seen clauses that commit people as part of an NDA to not talk to, 
cooperate or encourage any other complaints against the same person. So we're actually stopping people warning other people in the future. We're stopping them contributing to what might be the very important ongoing investigation of wrongdoing. I talked to a care home worker who was a whistleblower, basically, on the poor conditions in this care home. She signed an NDA for a very small amount of money and was pushed out because she was obviously you know, seen as a troublemaker. And now there's a class action being brought by the relatives of people who live in that care home for neglect. And she's already signed now to say she can't participate. So this is not right. Lawyers shouldn't be using the legal system to close down legal processes. So we feel that it's really important to draw attention to this and to think about legislation that will take NDAs completely off the table for cases like these. I'd love to say that the way that the legal profession and HR professionals use NDAs could be reformed from within and we could maybe get organizations to sign up to say they won't do it. But neither myself nor Zelda really believe that's going to happen in the next hundred years. And it would be very difficult to ensure and to monitor that. So we are working with legislators now. We feel that making it clear that you cannot ask a victim of misconduct to sign something that protects the other side. Of course, they can protect themselves. A one-sided confidentiality clause to protect their identity is perfectly reasonable, but they're being told they can't have that unless they also agree to protect the other side, and that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of other information available at can'tbuymysilence.com. I hope that your listeners consider going and reading some more about the campaign, what we're aiming to do, and also consider giving us a donation to help ease the pressure. There's one study that says that 95% of people who signed an NDA said it affected their mental health. Lawyers need to think about the fact that these NDAs aren't just about the people in the room. They're also about the other people who might be harmed by this individual. They're also about the friends and family of that victim who aren't going to be able to properly comfort and support them. And they're also about the public interest. The public has an interest in knowing these things and not having people gagged and unable to speak about them. We have defamation laws to protect us against untrue speech. We should not be closing down people from speaking about truthful facts that took place. So I'm saying to lawyers, get on board now, help us work out the best way to do this, help us to convince people who aren't convinced yet, and get in touch with the campaign. There's a testimonies page on there where we're asking people to come forward with their personal stories, which we then very carefully anonymize. They are so important for people to realize what's actually happening and the impact of this. I'm going to play devil's advocate on behalf of our, our, our listeners. What if signing an NDA leads to a settlement that they would not otherwise get. Right. I, I imagine that's the challenge you always get on this. First of all, 95% of civil cases settle before trial. And those figures have been completely consistent now going back 30 plus years. We didn't have NDAs. NDAs in the way they're being used now, the broadness is really something that was only seen creeping up in the last roughly 10 years or so. Lots of cases have always settled without NDAs. And secondly, if you think about who wants this NDA, the NDA is wanted 
by the side who wants to hide the information. What will happen if there isn't a settlement? It will be in court and in the public domain. So mm -hmm. it's a bluff. The very last thing that the wrongdoer side want is any kind of public knowledge of this. That's why they're asking for the NDA. But the last thing I'd say is I've been an employment mediator for many, many, many years. People put things on the table and you guys will see it yourselves as lawyers where they say, this is it, this is not negotiable, we're walking away unless you accept this. Sometimes they walk away, but at least nine times out of 10, they do not. In California, NDAs and sexual harassment cases have been banned since 2018. Have we seen a sudden drop in the settlement of sexual harassment cases? Of course not, it's, it's no difference. You make really good points and thank you for all that you've discussed with us about the work that you do with NDAs. The last topic that we wanted to talk about was actually your new book, Going Public. This book is very different from anything I've ever written before. Usually I write about people's stories because I'm a researcher, but this is my story. I wrote it because I'm a survivor of sexual violence when I was younger, as a child, as a teenager, and as a young woman. Some pretty serious sexual abuse. I wanted to go public, which is what the book's called, going public, in order to show that people who are victims of sexual violence aren't just the people who we stereotype, people who live in marginal conditions, people who are apparently very powerless and vulnerable. I know that people see me as obviously someone with a lot of privilege and someone who's been able to be relatively successful. And I wanted to try to counter that stereotype. It's everybody. And there will be all kinds of people in your lives that who have been exposed to this that you may not even know about. And the other was, I wanted to show what it was like to go through the legal system as somebody who came to it with a lot of familiarity and cheat knowledge in advance. It's very different for a law professor to sue the Anglican Church, which I did, than it is, or for a law professor to be a witness in a criminal proceeding, which I was, that it is for somebody without any legal background. And it was an appalling experience, incredibly difficult on an emotional level. And I wanted to describe that again to, to show if it's this difficult for somebody with my prior knowledge and privilege, just imagine how much harder it is for somebody for whom all of this is a whole new and unfamiliar area. Thank you for writing it and thank you for putting it out to everybody. Thanks, Khalil. I hope that people listening will be interested in reading it. Going public. So I think you got involved or connected with more deeply with the Muslim community when you wrote another book which connected to Sharia and the That's effects right. on family law. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work on Islamophobia? In the early 2000s, there was some very sensational newspaper headlines in Ontario, sort of making vague and, and very insubstantial references to divorce procedures in mosques. And it was immediately apparent that this was being treated as a kind of an othering or what's going on with these other people. There was never any information about exactly what was going on in mosques, but it was apparently very scary and it had something to do with divorce. So I was immediately intrigued and I began to talk to, through some of my, my Muslim friends and students who were Muslims, I was introduced to and started to talk to some of the imams. I got some funding to do this piece of work, which was to look at the ways in which mosques and imams in particular in North America act as a resource for families who are going through difficulties. I found that it was actually 
much more common than for even relatively secular Canadian Muslims to seek the approval of an imam or a religious leader, even though, of course, that wasn't a legal divorce. They would get a legal divorce at the same time. People would do both, but they really needed and wanted something in terms of a blessing, if you like, on the dissolution of the marriage. And for women, this was clearly especially important. There was an additional stigma for women of being divorced. There was an additional feeling of need that they had done it properly, done it within the cultural community traditions for them to be accepted afterwards, especially if they wanted to consider being remarried. There were many results that came out of that, Khalil. And if people are interested in the book, it's called Islamic Divorce in North America, a Sharia path in a secular society. What that work did for me personally was to immerse me in a community that I had, other than personal friendships, really no experience of as a community. I'd never been in a mosque before then. I'd never spoken with anyone who was an observant Muslim. I'd never talked to anyone about what Sharia might mean if you come from a Muslim country to a non-Muslim country like Canada. And I had all of the misinformation and the stereotypes that everybody else does, which generated those headlines in the first place. And what I found, of course, big surprise, was that Muslims are just like non-Muslims. They get married and sometimes it doesn't work. Duh. This is not rocket science, really. And when that happens, it's very difficult. And their families are very sad. These are generic problems that we all carry. And mm -hmm. if the process that I was investigating was a way of people coming to terms with and getting some closure around this. And it did not seem to me that it was doing anybody any harm. There was definitely an asymmetry around the involvement of women that is inherent in Islamic family law, that women have to ask permission for divorce, whereas their husbands do not. There were also many, many women in my sample who felt that going through these procedures with a supportive imam did give them a degree of closure that was really important to them. These communities, I'm sure, must have been scratching their heads thinking, what is this white girl who's not a Muslim doing in here asking us all the, what is happening here? They were always so incredibly kind and welcoming to me. And I now consider some of those communities to still be very close friends and allies. I began to speak more widely about Islamophobia, the stereotypes and misassumptions that people have about Islam and especially about Sharia. But you ask a group of people who are not Muslim, what does Sharia mean to them? They say it means cutting people's hands off or stoning them for adultery or something like this. They don't understand that Sharia for 99% of the world's Muslims is actually these family processes that are core parts of custom and ritual. They're not about criminal penalties. That's one of the ways our media really distorts Islam and gives people some very negative impressions that uh, are important to correct. And of course, once you've got that othering going on, then you have all the other problems that flow from that. So I'm very proud of all my friends and professional relationships in the Muslim community, not just in Canada, but also in the US, the UK and Australia. When the media uh, sensationalizes or others, it hurts our entire society. Yes. All the way down. Yeah. So thank you for that work. <laughs> I, I would love to hear from lawyers who are listening to this, who are willing to be people who will say 
that this is time to change. There's so many pressures inside the legal profession to conform, not to stand up and disagree with people who are maybe older or more senior than you. But sometimes you just have to do it because that's how change happens. I really hope people will take themselves out of the circle and educate themselves on the issue. Absolutely, Julie. And as we always tell Asians, you should not be afraid to rock the boat. Thank you so much for your time today. And it was a pleasure to have you on our episode. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Faculty BC podcast. Visit our website at facultybc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at FacultyBC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facultybc.ca.